Lord, we thank you so much for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you that we know about you and your ways from your word. And so we pray as we look into your word together as believers that you would be our teacher, that you would hide the speaker and magnify your great name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think we'll start in Ephesians where this all was raised for you as a class, election and predestination. And when someone gets to Ephesians um, 1 verse 4, please read that out. Anybody at all? Ephesians 1 4. Just as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and lovely before him in love. So there it is. He chose us in him. Uh, then the other jumping off point that I think sparked your interest and asked your questions was verse 5. Someone read verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Thanks. So what we have here is um, election in verse 4 and predestination in verse 5. And... Um, let me start by saying that election and predestination on the one side and free will on the other side, uh, we in our finite minds have a hard time seeing how they fit together, but they do. Uh, there's no contradiction in the plan or purpose of God. It's called an antinomy. Uh, anti, in opposition, namas, law, or rule. So an antinomy are two facts that in our finite minds on earth seem to contradict, which don't contradict in the mind of holy God. And so what we're going to do is go down this first sheet together. And uh, some of you may realize, or maybe you've been taught already, that the acronym for uh, Calvinism, or you also can call Calvinism the doctrines of grace. Same thing. When you hear the doctrines of grace and Calvinism, they're just interchangeable terms. So TULIP is the acronym for uh, Calvinism, T-U-L-I-P, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, there on page two, and um, P is for the perseverance of the saints. That's what P is, perseverance of the saints, but I've just put down eternal security because I think it's a little more clear a term. So TULIP for Calvinists, and then the bottom of your first page in the box, the acronym for Arminianism that stresses free will is not quite as memorable, I'm sorry about that, but F for free will, C for conditional election, U for unlimited atonement, R for resistible grace, and F for falling from grace. So at each point of comparison, really they're the opposite. Um, tulip, total, depravity, uh, Arminianism, free will. Uh, Calvinism, unconditional election. Uh, Arminianism, conditional election. Calvinism, unlimited excuse me, limited atonement, and for Arminians, uh, unlimited atonement. Uh, irresistible grace for the Calvinist versus uh, resistible grace for the Arminian. And last, perseverance of the saints or eternally secure salvation versus Arminians falling from grace. It's possible to lose one's salvation. So I just want to move my way down here a little bit, and again, we'll never cover all the references uh, there, but I hope that you will read them. That's why I put them there for you, so that you will do a Bible study uh, for yourself. Another thing I want you to know is I use abbreviations with total respect for God. There's no... Uh, Cavalierness in these abbreviations just helps me make notes. You can see that sometimes there's an oval with a bar through it horizontally. That's the Greek letter atheos. Uh, God is theos, and the first letter in the Greek of theos is a T. That's what that stands for. The oval with the bar is God. And then um, key, the letter key or chi in the Greek alphabet is the first letter for Christ. It's, it's a CH sound. So if you see like an X, that is for the Lord Jesus Christ with due respect, all right? So under total depravity, we see on the Calvinist side that people are believed to not be able to contribute even to saving faith. Uh, total depravity teaches that people are unable 
to um, come to faith in Christ without God's choice and enablement. Uh, the other symbol there, can't repent, that next symbol with a W with a bar over the top is without. If you see a W without a bar on top, it means with in my little abbreviational scheme. So total depravity says, uh, in the Calvinist viewpoint, that the, belief, the person can't contribute even faith without God enabling. And on the other side of that, the Arminian believes that only in a partial uh, depravity. So one way of putting that is the Calvinist believes that the person who is pre-salvation is dead in trespass and sin. Dead people are capable of nothing. Uh, my father's been a funeral director for over 50 years, and a dead body can do nothing. Arminianism, on the other hand, believes in a total, not a total depravity, but a partial uh, depravity, a, a pollution of the person, but not a, a death of the person through Adam and Eve's uh, sin. So the Arminian believes that the person is able to contribute to faith, saving faith. And the Arminian believes that the person can repent without God's help. That's the first point of comparison. If we go to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, would someone read that? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you in which you once walked according to the cause of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You said two? Uh, two through, one through three. three. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of flesh and of mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Thank you, Ampu. So this is uh, later in the book of Ephesians that you will be studying uh, with Brother Brian. It says uh, plainly that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So if we go over to chapter 2, verse 8, I want to show you something else that uh, we, I think we ought to see in this debate. Someone read um, 8 of chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourself, it is the gift of God. The um, word that, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, we have to figure out what the antecedent for that is. Grammatically, an antecedent is a noun that precedes a pronoun. So what is the antecedent to that? Well, when you look at the context, in the near context, it's faith, saving faith. And if you go prior to that, verses 5 and following, you'll see that's being made alive. That's a gift of God. Being raised up, verse 6, that is a gift of God that we're incapable of contributing towards. So the Calvinist believes the pre-salvation person is dead, incapable. The Arminian believes that the person before salvation is polluted, but able to contribute in some manner in this light-saving faith to the process of being saved. 2 Timothy 2.25, someone like to read that? It's like a sword drill in Sunday school when you were little, right? Second Timothy 2, 25. Again, the first person to read, I would appreciate it. In humility, according to those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. This seems to be teaching that it takes a gift of God, a granting by God to even repent of sin as necessary for becoming a Christian. Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Moving down to the next point in the acrostic for Calvinism or the doctrines of grace is for the Calvinist is unconditional election and for the Arminian it is conditional election. In a nutshell, the 
unconditional election position believes the scriptures teach that there's no merit in the person who God elects. It's his sovereign choice for his glory from eternity past. The Arminian, on the other hand, believes it's a conditional election, believes that God looked down the corridor of time all the way to the end of the age and saw who would choose to believe in Jesus for salvation, and then God would choose, elect that person from the foundation of the world. So in the Calvinist position of unconditional election, God truly elects. But in the Arminian position, uh, really, it's nonsense to think that God elects because God is responsive in the process and not proactive. Um, and the Calvinist side with to do with election uh, is God's choice of who is saved, and in the Arminian position, it's the person's choice of who is saved. And so the question I think we have to ask is who is in the driver's seat of human history? Who is in the driver's seat of personal history? Is it God electing, or is it us choosing Christ and God responded to that foreknowledge and elected on the basis of the person's willingness to obey? There are several scriptures there that uh, we could look at, but just think about this. There were a lot of people who believed in God in Ur of the Chaldeans, ancient uh, Mesopotamia, but God elected Abram and decided to make a nation out of him. And so it was a no-merit choice. It was a sovereign choice that wound up giving us the human line of Messiah, the Jews. Um, on the other side of that ledger, with conditional election, um, free will of human beings really overrides any concept of God's sovereignty. In the unconditional side, the person who becomes a believer gets God's mercy. The person on the free will side um, uh, gets God's justice. These are not either or, but this is the, the focus of these different types of believers. And um, when a person says that, that unconditional election is unjust, we have to remember that we don't want justice. We want mercy. If we had justice, no one would make it to heaven. Right? But if we uh, have mercy while God remains just, then I think we have something biblical. Still under unconditional election, again, there's all those verses there I hope you'll look up. God gets what he wants. The elect are saved. On the other side, people get what they want because people are independent of God. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. Limited atonement is a logical inclusion in a belief system. You can't uh, X out limited atonement as a Calvinist and still be logically holding to the other four points of TULIP. Now, did God, anywhere in Scripture, did God provide salvation to a limited number? Well, yes, uh, the global flood. Uh, the whole of mankind was so evil and corrupt. But God told a family of eight to get into an ark. God told a patriarch of that family of eight to build an ark when there had never been a rainstorm. So, yes, there, there are instances of God choosing some to save and not all. Also, Israel's Day of Atonement. All the pagan nations around the nation of Israel were just as much sinners as Israel was, but God provided an atonement in the animal sacrificial system just for the Jews. A sample of limited atonement. And of course, with the Arminian, um, believing in unlimited atonement, they would argue that the all is an all of potential because the Arminian would, would just like uh, the Calvinists, would say not everybody gets saved. But the Arminian would say that Christ died for everyone in potential, 
but only the free will of those that would trust Christ are actually saved. Let's go to Titus 2.11. We're enjoying our fabulous five summer teaching series on Wednesday nights. We're three lessons into the five. Wednesdays at 6.30, you'd be welcome to join us. Verse by verse through Titus. That's a little commercial, no extra charge. Uh, Titus 2.11, when they get it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So the Arminian would use that verse to say that Christ's sacrifice on the cross uh, potentially was for everyone, those who would choose to believe and those who would not choose to believe. The Calvinist would look at that and say, what is, what is being said here? That for the grace of God has appeared, has been manifest. Uh, when was the grace of God manifest in perfection on earth? Jesus. When Jesus became incarnate, when the first Christmas, he became for uh, us the uh, quintessential, perfect example of grace and truth. Just on a sidebar, uh, grace without truth is mush, and truth without grace is a hammer. But God is both grace and truth. Um, again, far too many verses to read, but they're all important. I would ask you to study those for your own benefit on your own time, maybe in your quiet times this week or next week as well. Uh, the, the Calvinists would say that there was no wastage of Jesus' blood. He shed blood on the cross for the elect and they all will be saved. The Arminian would um, at least uh, logically say that some of the blood of Christ uh, was shed for people who will not believe by their free will. And so was Christ's blood efficient? Uh, the Calvinists would say yes, and the other would say uh, not by direct statement, but by implication that there was blood shed for people who will choose not to believe. Um, the question that I think we have to ask is, was there any aspect of failure in Jesus' cross work? Um, and of course, I think both sides would say no, there wasn't. And again, under limited atonement, um, we want mercy as Calvinists, and the Arminian wants justice, and God is both. Now, I think another important point to say in this debate is when the Arminians stress free will and the Calvinists stress election, the question that I think is a, is a fair question to evaluate either position is, is there any instance in the scriptures of God blocking a person's free will? And I believe there are several. But if we go to Genesis 3, Genesis 3, again, someone if they could read Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Of course, Genesis 3 is the accurate historical account of Adam and Eve's fall into sin by disobeying God. And uh, in Genesis 3, 22 to 24, uh, this is after the fall, this is after God has pronounced the negative consequences for disobeying him and sinning, consequences that continue to be prevalent in the human race all these centuries later. Uh, men, men have to earn their food on the table by the sweat of their brow. And I'm learning in the Bahamas that's a lot of sweat. And that women have pain in childbirth. Uh, these are still uh, consequent spin-offs of Adam and Eve's sin. But we're going to Genesis 3, 22 to 24, and if someone could read those three verses. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what we have here is Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. 
they have a broken relationship with holy God that they never had before they sinned. And they have these consequences of judgment that have been spelled out earlier in chapter 3. And God, in compassionate mercy, spared them from eating from the tree of life. Why? Because the tree of life would have given them unending life in perpetual alienation from God. And so he blocked their ability to choose to eat of the tree of life by pushing them out of Eden. If Adam and Eve had wanted a free will to stay in Eden in sin, a sinful state they were in, they had the potential to eat from this tree of life and to perpetuate their lostness before God forever and ever. God in his mercy blocked their free will. He evicted them from the Garden of Eden. They couldn't have the free choice to stay even if they wanted to. And furthermore, he stationed uh, cherubim, which is more than one angel. In Hebrew, I am means plural. He stationed more than one angel with a flaming sword that turned in every direction so that they couldn't get to the tree of life even if they wanted to. He blocked their free will out of mercy. He blocked their free will. John 6. Someone go there and read John 6. 64 to 65, a long chapter. John 6, 64 to 65, please. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Here is uh, Jesus in his public ministry with uh, 12 disciples. And uh, it's, the text is saying that Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot would never believe on him as Savior. Uh, Jesus, Judas Iscariot was in for a different salvation than Jesus would provide. Uh, Judas Iscariot was not in a salvation for his sin. He was in a salvation for political emancipation from the Romans. And so when it became clear to Judas Iscariot that Jesus wasn't going to deliver them from Rome, he lost interest in uh, being loyal to Christ. And you know what he did. He, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, which was the common Old Testament law prescribed price for a common slave. Think of that. Judas Iscariot uh, walked with, slept with, uh, ate with the Lord Jesus for over three years, saw the miracles, heard the teaching, but he did not believe, and Jesus knew that he would not believe. Jesus didn't wait to find out what would turn out for Judas Iscariot at his death. Jesus knew ahead that he would not believe. And then in case we would miss it, in verse 65, uh, Christ said, For this reason, back up, verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. So Jesus is saying, For this reason that Judas Iscariot does not believe, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. This is a Jesus teaching on election. Jesus is saying that no one can come and believe on me except the Father is involved ahead of time, granting him, as we understand it from other scriptures, repentance, saving faith, and so on. So Adam and Eve, case of Jesus God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit blocking free will. Pharaoh in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus 9. Exodus 9. Children of Israel are in bondage, uh, making bricks for the pyramids uh, under a harsh taskmaster named Pharaoh. Someone read uh, Exodus 9, verse 12, please. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So clearly, um, 
the text reports that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. His ability to believe in the God of the Hebrews was shut down, hardened off, not by Pharaoh, but by God. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Exodus 10.1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Thank you. And then 11, verse 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh... Pharaoh will not heed you, saying that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So, the Arminian believer would say of, of, of 11.9 that God could say to Moses that Pharaoh would not listen, will not listen to you because God looked down the corridor of time from the foundation of the world and it saw that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh would not believe in him. So that's why God announced to Moses that he would not believe. The Calvinist says God did not elect that Pharaoh for salvation, so he's not going to believe. So the question becomes, how are you going to look at that? I would submit that you have to look at that in the context of what that book of Exodus says about Pharaoh. And here are two references prior to that that said God hardens his heart. So I'll, I'll leave that with you to, to think through. So we've got Tulip for uh, total depravity with Calvinists. Uh, on the other side of the ledger, Arminians say partial depravity. We've got unconditional election with the Calvinists. We've got conditional election with the Arminian. We've got limited atonement with the Calvinist, and we've got unlimited atonement with the Arminian. Yes. That's a great question, Priscilla. I'm so glad you asked it. We see why in 11.9. We see why in 11.9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why? So that purpose, point, that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. The reason God hardened Pharaoh's heart was for God's glory and for God's will to be done. If he didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh repents and believes in the God of Israel, we have a different story. We don't have a Passover. We don't have a prefigure of Christ's sacrifice as a lamb for sinners slain. It ch would change everything. So that's an excellent question. So in general terms, the Calvinist believes that in times God hardens or blocks faith in people because of his plan, God's plan, because of God's purpose, and because of God's glory. Would it tell me to say that he blocks faith or hardens everyone's hearts except the elect? Yes, yes. Uh, well, it's hard. His, the the uh, Calvinist position on people is they don't have a hardened heart, they have a dead heart, okay. which is quite different. Is it different? Yeah, good question. Um, the next one in the acrostic for Calvinism is I for irresistible grace. And for the Arminian, it is a resistible grace. Um, go with me to Acts 13. Acts 13. And then when someone gets it, if you could read verse 48. Acts 13. 48. So this is the baby church. The book of Acts is the story of the birth of the church and then the toddlership of the church and then the uh, 
the growth of the church. And in 1348, that was just read, and when the Gentiles heard this, if you go back to the previous verse, what they heard was a quote of the Old Testament, was the Jews were told by God that God had placed them as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. The way the Jews brought salvation to the end of the earth was that Messiah in his humanity was Jewish. And so that's how uh, that verse was fulfilled. But because the Gentiles learned from the Old Testament that the Jews were not going to monopolize God's mercy and grace, but they would be um, a conduit, a pipeline, uh, delivery system of salvation through faith in God to the Gentiles. It says in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the Calvinists would say that's election. Um, and then John 6. We're going fast, I know. And just as Priscilla and Mark have asked questions, I want you to feel free, but we're going fast. Um, Brian said, I can come back another time if we need to, and I'm willing to do that, of course. Uh, John 6, uh, 64 and 65. Try to cover off, uh, three, four, six word course in, in 45 minutes. Well, uh, the truth is that millions of pages have been written on this debate over church history. That's, that's the truth, so... Uh, we're doing our best to do it in a little while. Uh, this is John 6, 64 and 65. We've seen these before, but let's see them again. S someone? But there are some of you who do not believe, but Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Thank you. So uh, the Arminian would say uh, God can be resisted. A person in their free will can say no to the offer of salvation. Arminian would say that God's decree uh, can be thwarted and that, that uh, there's a, a lack of sovereignty by true definition in God in salvation. And again, as I said before, the question becomes, who is in the driver's seat? Who is um, in control when it comes to personal salvation? Is it God who chooses, or is it the person who chooses? Who chooses salvation? Is it the individual, the Arminian position, or is it God, the Calvinist position? So now we're down to the last letter in Calvinism, which is a P for perseverance of the saints. You might want to write that on your notes, but I'm just listing it as eternal security. And the Arminian believes that uh, the person can be saved, but then the person can lose their salvation. Um, and we have some verses in the back of your packet that I don't know if we'll get to today, maybe we'll get to the next time I'm here, uh, that Ar Arminians would sight as it seems that God teaches that we can lose salvation or fall from grace. Um, I think the most telling thing for me, well there's a couple things that are most telling to, that I would believe that once a person is saved they're always saved, is that in John 3 when a seminary professor, a Pharisee came to Jesus by night named Nicodemus, uh, he came by night because he was embarrassed to go to an unschooled uh, heck from Galilee who he had heard was teaching with authority, and he went to ask a theological question. And here he is, a seminary professor in Jerusalem. So he goes by night, alone to Jesus, and he asks, how do you get right with God? How is it that you gain salvation in the terms that we would call it? And in John 3, 3 through 7, we read, Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So first of all, if anybody takes issue with you that you say you're a born-again Christian and that that's a man-made term, a church-generated term, you can say, no, it's Jesus' term. Jesus used the term with a guy who straightforwardly asked, how do you get right with God? Jesus used the term born again. 
there's no need to be hesitant about using it or embarrassed about using it. Jesus used it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Stop, period, end answer. He was finished answering. Then Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, we can't fault Nicodemus. I mean, born again, the easiest way to take that is literally. And, you know, Nicodemus wasn't being smart. Nicodemus wasn't being dull of intellect. He was just asking a logical question. He was saying, how can you be born again? How can you get into your mother's womb and be born a second time? Fair question. Five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, there's been all kinds of conjecture or, or interpretational options on what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. Some say you've got to be water baptized and believe in Jesus to be truly saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. So what is water here? Well, Jesus is using a metaphor of birth. And when a lady with child is soon to deliver, her water breaks. And so I think what Jesus is saying is that you have to be born physically, but you also have to be born spiritually. You have to be born of a natural way, and you have to be born of a supernatural way. So he says to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, so that ties into the water being a pregnant lady's water breaking, born of the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, with a capital S, is spirit. And that comes back to Ephesians 2, 1, when it says, Paul writes under the inspiration of spirit, that you were once dead in your trespass and sin. If you're dead, you need to become alive. And so Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus brackets his answer. His answer starts right out of the gate in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he brackets his answer at the end. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. A good Bible interpretation rule is when you see terms repeating with, with verses between, they're like brackets. And it's encapsulating, it's containing the answer for the question. And that's what's going on here. So of all the metaphors, of all the metaphors that Jesus could have picked to describe coming to life from spiritual death, coming into the kingdom of God one day, of all the metaphors uh, Jesus had at his disposal, he picks birth, rebirth. I had nothing to do with my conception. I had nothing to do with my birth on May 26, 58. Nothing. Jesus picked birth. Then, on the concept of the Arminian that you can fall from grace and lose your salvation, those of you who have children, when the child was born and you named the child, you put your surname on the child's legal name. Right? Smith. A lot of hockey players, it seems, now have a hyphenated name. Some NFL players, they put their mother's maiden name and their father's surname. But when a child is born, their identity is established as being a Smith or being a Jones. That's their identity. So let's say one of the Smith children is raised in a Christian home, trust, transfers trust to Christ at a young age, and goes on through life and gets in the wrong crowd in high school and college. And this Smith gets in crime, gets involved in crime, uh, substance abuse, drugs. The Arminian would say he lost his salvation or he never had in the first place. The Calvinist would say it is possible that he made bad choices and is truly born again. So our children are both adopted as newborn babies, five years apart. And when we went to the judge's chamber, their legal name at birth was exchanged for our surname in adoption. And so, God forbid, if our daughter or our adopted son 
went into flagrant sin and went against the core values and the spiritual beliefs of our family, they would not have to come back to us as parents and say, could I become an Elliot again? You're always an Elliot. But if you want to line up your priorities and values with the values of the believing Elliot family again, that's great. Same idea with the prodigal. When the prodigal son went to the far-off country and spent his money on prostitutes and wound up being in the pig pen eating the pig's food, which, by the way, was about as low as a Jew could go to work with pigs, right? Pork. When he came back, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, <laughs> when he came to his senses, he didn't go home and assume that he had lost his last name. He assumed that he had lost his place in the inheritance order because he got his inheritance ahead of time. What about the father did? The father didn't look on the horizon and say, how many days have you been repentance and sin-free? And tell me exactly what sins you repented of before I take you back. No. The father saw him on the horizon, and the reason the father saw him on the horizon was he was looking at the horizon regularly, longing for his son to come back. And so when the boy's a little dot on the horizon getting bigger and bigger, the father runs to him. Every time I say that, it, it moves me. Because men in the ancient Near East didn't run for anybody. Aged men never ran for anybody. It was undignified. If you're a mature man, you don't run for anything. But this father ran out of love and grace and mercy, and he embraced him and said, put the best cow on the barbecue. We're going to have a party. Yes. Yes. Even prior to God, in that context, he recognized he was still a part of the family. Yes. And the rise of the Yes. So he understood. Very good, Priscilla. So the repentant boy, I must arise and go to my father. He recognized he was still his son. Excellent. I appreciate that. So what are we saying here? I'm trying to make the point that um, the boy, although he sinned, didn't lose his standing in the family. Now, on the other side of the ledger, if you believe the Bible teaches that you can lose your salvation, the question you have to ask is for what sins? One would have to catalog sins with respect to severity. And then what sins would warrant the loss of salvation? I don't know that the scripture says anything about that. Um, and if you could lose your salvation because of certain sins that are cataloged as being the biggies, how long would you have to be in that biggie sin to lose your salvation? Is it the minute you do it, you lose it? Or is it after a year or after 10 years or after a lifetime? And the scriptures don't spell that out either. And so really what it comes down to on this point of P for perseverance of the saints or eternal security versus can fall from grace is really what it comes down to is this. Is it God's grip on you that keeps you safe or is it your grip on God? The Calvinists would say it's God's grip on you. The Arminian would say it's your grip on God. I personally am so glad it's God's grip on me because I've lost grip on God in high school. I've lost grip on God in college. And if it was my grip on God, I would not be saved if you could lose your salvation. One last passage, John 10. Um, one question. Yes, sir. In reference to... The Calvin view and the Arminian view, it, it appears that both of them, in some cases, have error in terms of the belief. Is that, that is, I mean, is it right to say? Because just now, what you say just now, in reference to Calvin, it seems there's a clear error. 
what, in what in what respect? I don't, I'm not in, following. In, in reference to the, the fact that you can lose, you, you can lose your salvation. You know what I mean? Jesus says you can't. Can't. But the meaning says you can't. Yes. Because it's, it's your grip on God. Yes. So it's 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 clear that's there. In terms of the belief. Well, what's clear is that one of them isn't right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, both can't be right. Yeah. Well, really, almost every point of comparison is true. That's true. One, one, in every binary situation, one is right and one is wrong. You can't blend them together and say the middle is right. And so, obviously, I take a, I take a Calvinist position. And, On all points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, you can be saved, born again, a brother and a sister in Christ as an Arminian. There's no question. I'm not saying that people who take an Arminian position aren't my brothers and sisters in Christ. If they're trusting Christ for salvation, we'll be in heaven together. I guess we'll get it worked out at that point. But logically, you can't be both. So you can't sit on the fence. And the way, to, the way to get on one side of the fence or the other is to study the Word. Be a Berean Christian and study the Word with the passages I've given you and see if what I'm telling you is right according to Scripture or it isn't. That's, that's the only way to check. And that's something I can't do for you. That's something before God you need to do. I agree logically you can't be both, but logically you can't explain the, the Trinity too. So I'm wondering if there's just... Obviously there's it's a mystery, right? Yeah. It's, but it's, um, I started out this class with Calvinists, and then uh, through the course of the last several weeks, there was a couple points like, well, I wonder about Arminius on a couple of points, and now I'm <laughs> Well, that, that's fair. Well, I know, but I'm wondering if there's just, just I don't know, beyond beyond us as far as, uh, you can't logically explain the, tr- the Trinity. I'm wondering if there's just, this is God's, I know he wants us to settle on our belief, but uh, I don't know. Well, I appreciate that. And it comes back to what does the Bible say? Um, You know, some would argue, Jehovah's Witnesses would argue that the Bible doesn't say Trinity. But we believe in a Trinity. Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that the term millennial kingdom or millennium isn't in the Bible. It isn't. But we see other scriptures that teach that God is three in one in the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 48, 16 is the old, one of, classic Old Testament expression of the Trinity. Uh, Matthew 28, 15 to 18, the Great Commission is a classic New Testament expression of the Trinity. So um, there are concepts that we would all share, like the Trinity of God and the, um, the, rapture. Uh, the rapture, or uh, yeah, the rapture or the millennial kingdom, that Christ will have a kingdom. Uh, on the kingdom position, there's pre- Post and ah, premillennial post, uh, uh, excuse me, premillennial millennium, which is where I fall in conviction, means so I believe the second coming of Christ will precede the thousand-year kingdom on earth, a literal kingdom. The postmillennialist, after, believes that the kingdom of Christ is being ushered into power right now. I don't see that. I, I, I watch the news. <laughs> The amillennial position, the prefix A, is without or non, no. So the amillennial person says there's no literal kingdom of Christ to expect on earth. The only kingdom of Christ is in your heart as a believer. Our Reformed friends, our Presbyterian friends, Lutherans, would believe there's no literal kingdom of God on earth to expect. And so the only kingdom of God on earth is in our hearts. We are holding the kingdom of God as we live on earth in our hearts. I don't believe that. Um, We have five minutes, so let's pull up. It's amazing. We got through TULIP, and then you can see in future uh, consideration, we'll look at predestination, how the two view that. Um, Election to what? Regeneration. Faith and repentance, human responsibility. Let me just say, in both uh, both systems, human responsibility is acknowledged. That's a commonality. Uh, heaven's arch and foreknowledge. Uh, heaven's arch. I'll just tell you what it is. Uh, heaven's arch. Remember, I said it's an antinomy. Uh, two 
seemingly contradictory truths about God and His will that are seemingly contradictory to us in our finite minds while on earth are not contradictory in the infinite mind and plan of God. Antinomy. So the, this is one way that the antinomy was described. Uh, Spurgeon, I think it was, it said there's an archway that is into heaven. And as you walk into heaven and see the front of the archway, it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You walk through the archway and you're inside heaven, you look back at the same archway, and it says, whosoever will may come. It's an antinomy. In the mind of God, they go together. And in our minds, we struggle. We do our best. We do Bible study. We work at it. We pray about it. But we, you know, can we get it, you know, just slam dunk? I don't think we can get it slam dunk, this side of heaven. It's an antinomy. Um, what else? I've got uh, on page four uh, some passages that the Calvinist really has to answer to the Arminians' uh, points. There are eight of them. Uh, these are common verses and passages that our Arminian friends would look to to, to believe that free will uh, is, uh, overrides God's sovereignty. I'll let you look at those. Do I believe in free will? Yes, I believe that I could uh, choose what I had for breakfast. I believe that um, within the sovereign decree of God, will is limited in, with respect to salvation. But we, we are moral beings. So um, if I, let's see, as a Christian in college, um, I drank alcohol to excess. I'm not proud of that. But as a Christian in college, I drank alcohol to excess. And there were times when I could have chosen to drive myself home drunk or to let someone else drive me who was sober. And I made both, both kinds of decisions. You know, again, I'm not proud of that. But God gives me choice and free will. He gave me choice and free will about who I marry. You know, things like that. But I don't think in the Calvinist position, which I do hold, as I've said, I don't think that the person's free will relative to salvation overrides God's election. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my belief. It doesn't answer or you don't like it. I'm not sure which. How is the unpardonable? Sorry. Sorry? Um, I don't know. I... I know that God knew who we would, what we would do from time to time, but I believe that he gave us free will to choose whether we want him or not. If not, John 3 and 16, what's the point of that? You know, we, we said whosoever will. It's not his desire that any should perish. Right. There, there are answers to those points. But basically, a verse like 316 of John, uh, the Calvinists would say, all of the elect. And what, the other point was uh, um, that God looked, looked forward to see who would believe. Yeah. Right. Well, if that is the case, if God was reactive to the foreknowledge of the future that Rob Elliott would believe in Christ and then therefore God elected Rob Elliott, that really makes election nonsense. Because God didn't elect anybody. God responded to what he saw I would choose. So uh, I think we have to agree to disagree in love because... So do you believe in double you Well, you have to. If God, if God chooses only some, then he doesn't choose others. That's, that's the logic. One more question. Oh, could you repeat what you just said about God seeing in the future? Um, did you say that he elects those that he sees will accept him? No. That's, that's the Arminian position. Okay. No, I believe the scripture teaches that God elects ahead of any of us being. And he has, for his own sovereign reasons and purposes, elects some and not others. 
Um, and that's, you know, going back to the jumping off point of where this whole question and, and good discussion started in your class is Ephesians 1, verse 4. And by the way, uh, this whole exercise that, that Brother Brian has taken you through and that I'm trying to take you through is so healthy. It's so worthwhile. It's so equipping. It's so much a part of discipleship. It's the meat of God's Word. It's not the uh, straightforward. This is hard. This is, this is hard. And in, in Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, Five, he predestined us to adoption. My, and I don't, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, believe me. My primary thing about interpreting any verse of the Bible is when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense or you're left with nonsense. <laughs> when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense or you're left with nonsense. And you know, that's, now getting off salvation, that's the person who every word, um, every word in certain books of the Bible they say, well, you know what's behind that? That's this, that's a symbol for this. And then you've got the Da Vinci Code, you know, that heresy by D Dan Brown, and the Bible's a code that has to be decoded by knowing numerology and all this stuff. Not when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, or you're going to be left with nonsense. The Bible is a revelation. It's not a concealment. God bothered to reveal the Bible so that we would know Him and know His way and will. We don't have to go to seminary. We don't have to uh, become a monk and go live in a monastery for our life to figure out what God's saying in His Word. A child. A child can understand the plain and simple things the Bible is saying. There are difficult spots like this. When but, it comes to me, when it comes to election and predestination, see, in my mind, when God blows all of us away, there's never a time when God didn't know everything. Correct. So he always did. That's what makes him God. Right. That's an excellent, Patrick, that's excellent. So really, the point is, God did look down the corridor of time, knowing everything. So the Calvinist said, and based on nothing in the people per se, he chose some and not others. No merit. The Arminian says, God, same thing, God looked down the corridor of time, saw people, and the Arminian said, God saw who would free will choose him and who would free will reject him, and God responded to that by electing those that would only free will choose him. No, I like Coke a lot better than Pepsi. I think it was Dr. Stone who said, I explained to the graduate some years ago the ultimate text were made by the same company. But the but the the, um, the the company knew what was in the Coke and also the Pepsi. So he put the Pepsi and the Coke down the the Broadway. And because the company knew what they put in there, he told the company to go and get it. Go and get it. And so they even though the Coke and the Pepsi were, were there next to the company, the person knew what was in it, and so he ran and got the coat, and he drank it. Yeah, wow. I never heard that one. I have to think about that one. I wonder where Goombe Punch fits into all that. <laughs> I'm praying for two people um, that they will come to know the Lord as their personal Savior. Good. Am I still to continue to do that? Absolutely. Uh, the, the error to think that election means you don't do evangelism is just a big error. Um, my uh, parents made a summer acreage for our family and they bulldozed a man-made pond and they stocked the pond with bass and uh, and uh, they they put like 500 bass in this pond. And the Ministry of Natural Resources in Ontario said, now Mr. Elliott, if you don't fish this for two years, at least to take fish out, you will not be ever able to fish this pond out because they'll reproduce so well that you'll never fish it out. So we waited two years. Do you know what? Now, when I go, I don't go there, we sold the property. When I used to go there, no kidding, I would catch a fish either every cast 
or every second cast. And that was a place that spoiled me on fishing. <laughs> because no, I never caught fish like that anywhere else. But I knew in that pond there were fish that would bite. And so I was motivated to fish. When we know there are elect people, I'm motivated to share my faith. I don't look at somebody and say, well, she looks elect. He doesn't look elect. I just share the gospel to everybody. Someone has said, I can do all the nominating I want, but God has done all the electing. Great question. Keep, keep praying. Time will tell where, where things are. Keep praying. Keep sharing your faith. I'm glad you asked that. Let's pray. i got to get ready for the morning service. Thank you so much for welcoming me here today and uh, listening to uh, the doctrines of grace as I understand them. And uh, I'm going to dash right out. I wish I could stay and just talk with you and in an unhurried way, but I, I don't have that luxury. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great class. Uh, a class of uh, thinking, thinkers, a class of believers, a class that honors your word, and a class that wants answers. Uh, we thank you that you are a God of answers, that you don't hide behind anything. You show us in your word everything we need to know. And Lord, we confess that this whole um, debate or comparison between Calvinism and Arminianism is hard. It's uh, hard to understand. It's hard to uh, maybe appreciate the position of the other side. But Lord, we pray that in charity and love and mutual respect that we can go forward in unity. And Lord, we would ask that wherever we are in the timeline of spiritual growth and maturing, that we would not stop growing, that we would not skirt around issues like this as being too hard but that we be like the Bereans, searching the word daily to see if what has been taught them is so. Bless these, Lord, families they represent. Bless them as they go forward as your servants. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Hope to see you in the worship service.